It's really strange because for generations we used to live near the sea. We don't know anything else but the sea. Residents of San Luis, Senegal in West Africa are being forced to relocate due to climate change as the coastal city sinks under rising seas. It's Friday, November 11th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead on WBUR, one of the largest crypto exchanges has filed for bankruptcy protection. And on this Veterans Day, a mother serving in the Air Force recalls how members of her unit pitched in to buy Christmas gifts for her family. And award-winning Uruguayan singer-songwriter Jorge Drexler comes to Boston. You'll hear from Drexler on his process and how the pandemic affected his songwriting. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and China looms over this weekend's gathering of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in Cambodia. President Biden will attend the summit to promote U.S. interests in a region where China is also working to expand its influence. Biden's due to meet face-to-face with Chinese leader Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali on Monday. The Biden administration is also casting the U.S. as a world leader on combating climate change. Biden said as much earlier today at the climate conference in Egypt. We immediately rejoined the Paris Agreement. We convened major climate summits and reestablished. I apologize you ever pulled out of the agreement. Now Biden turns his attention to the gathering in Cambodia, the first such in-person meeting since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Two new Omicron subvariants of the coronavirus are now dominant in the United States, according to estimates released today by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Here's NPR's Rob Stein. According to the CDC's estimates, the Omicron subvariants known as BQ1 and BQ1.1 have now replaced BA5 as the most common viruses spreading in the U.S. Scientists have been keeping a close watch on the new subvariants because they are among the most adept yet at evading immunity people have from previous infections and vaccinations. That means they could help fuel yet another winter surge as the weather gets colder and people start gathering and traveling for the holidays. The good news is the new subvariants don't seem to make people any sicker than the previous strains. Rob Stein, NPR News. States find out today if the Biden administration plans to further extend the current public health emergency, which is set to expire in 60 days. So far, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has made no formal announcement about whether it plans to renew the emergency declaration that took effect January of 2020 at the onset of the pandemic. A top U.S. border official is being forced out of his job. NPR's Joel Rose reports it's a sign of mounting tension within the administration after a year of record migrant apprehensions at the southern border. The head of U.S. Customs and Border Protection has been asked to resign or face being fired. CBP Commissioner Chris Magnus said in a statement to the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post that he had refused the request to step down from the Secretary of Homeland Security, the cabinet member who oversees CBP. DHS and CBP did not respond to requests for comment. The number of migrant apprehensions at the southern border climbed to a record high of more than 2 million last year, fueling attacks from Republicans that the Biden administration's border policies are too lenient. It's been less than a year since Magnus was confirmed by the Senate after serving as a police chief in Tucson, Arizona. Joel Rose, NPR News. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Student loan borrowers in Massachusetts say they're disappointed but not surprised that a federal student loan relief plan is hitting legal snags. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, a federal judge ruled yesterday the Biden administration's debt forgiveness program is unlawful. The judge called the program a, quote, complete usurpation of congressional authority in his ruling blocking the program. The Biden administration is appealing that decision. Tim Scalona is a student at Suffolk Law School with $170,000 in student debt. He's hopeful the program will survive, but... I think the back and forth, it's honestly a bit stressful. I feel like it leaves people in the balance. They don't really know what to expect or if they'll even get the support that was promised. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is urging Republicans who've challenged the program to stop holding up the financial relief. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. It'll be current Governor Charlie Baker, not Governor-elect Mara Healey, who selects the interim general manager of the MBTA. T-Chief Steve Poftak is stepping down on January 3rd, two days before the end of Baker's term. Baker's office confirms that means Baker will appoint Poftak's immediate successor. Healy's transition team says Healy will conduct a search for a permanent GM. Senator Ed Markey is calling on Twitter officials to explain its verification process for users. Markey is asking the company to explain how it makes sure accounts are actually operated by the people they purport to be. Earlier this week, a Washington Post journalist obtained an account that claimed to be Markey paying the company to become verified. Twitter has since paused the pay-for-verification program. Well, it's raining out across most of the state, as WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes tells us it's associated with former Hurricane Nicole. While the remnants of Nicole are moving in, scattered showers will turn to periods of heavy rain and some rumbles of thunder overnight into tomorrow morning. The rain should end in Boston around 11 a.m., give or take. Most of us will pick up either side of an inch, inch and a half of rain, so there will be some big puddles, isolated urban street flooding, but I'm not concerned about more than that. Strong south to southwest wind gusts of 40 miles per hour in Boston and 55 miles per hour for the South Shore Cape and Islands will result in some isolated pockets of damage and outages. The wind subsides quickly, though, as the rain ends and the sun comes out right after that, boosting our highs to around 70 tomorrow afternoon. And it'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow night. The lows will be around 47, partly sunny and cooler on Sunday. Slight chance of rain first thing in the morning. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by PBS with Taken Hostage. American Experience tells the story of the Iran hostage crisis through eyewitness accounts. A two-night event beginning Monday at 9, 8 central on PBS. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As President Biden and other world leaders meet at the climate summit in Egypt, we're going to spend some time looking at the impact of climate change in Western Africa. At the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, the city of San Luis, Senegal, is sandwiched between the river and the sea. It's an ancient fishing town, a UNESCO World Heritage Center. During colonial times, San Luis was Senegal's capital. Today, it's steadily shrinking under rising seas. This is where we begin an epic journey, from Senegal to Morocco to Spain, tracing a line that connects three of the biggest stories of our time climate change, migration, and the rise of far-right political leaders. To understand that global story, we need to start local, with a grandfather named Mamadou Cham. He carries himself like a community leader, an elder, 
which he is. As a child, he was raised in a family of fishermen. Every day when his mother made lunch, she would send young Mamadou to fetch his father from the shoreline. Even if our mom hadn't started cooking the food, because the sea was very far from the houses, by the time you came back from calling your dad to have lunch, the lunch was ready. Nowadays, God has pushed the sea up to our houses. Climate change destroyed many houses. This old man no longer lives in the home that his parents built. He no longer lives in a permanent home at all. We no longer have the cool, fresh air we used to have from the sea. He sits in a temporary shelter built by the UN. It's a camp called Jogop. Hundreds of people live here, all of them displaced by rising seas. Mamadou leads their community organization. When I ask if he misses his former life as a fisherman, okay. of course, he says. The camp's landscape is uniform and monochrome. The flimsy plastic walls of the cookie-cutter buildings are the same tan color as the sand that surrounds them. The structures sit on gray concrete blocks in an orderly grid. These homes have no running water or electricity. Goats forage for any small nub of greenery. This place feels miles from the ocean, and it is. Some of the men here still catch a bus every day to go fishing at 4 a.m. They pay a bus fare they can't always afford. They tell us it feels insulting having to pay to get to water that used to be at their fingertips. Hadi Sar is Mamadou's wife. It's really strange because for generations we used to live near the sea. Fishermen, kids, they only know the sea. We don't know anything else but the sea. She sits in the sand with her daughters and grandchildren pouring tea. When I was a child, every morning we used to go to the sea to swim and to play hide and seek. Our kids nowadays won't have the opportunity to do that. There's an expression in Wolof, water doesn't leave its path. It means once water decides where it wants to go, there's no stopping it. Our ancestors talk about that, people who passed away a long time ago. Today, if you go and wake them up, they'll tell you, look, we had predicted this. Khadi Sar's ancestors also experienced floods. The water would come, and everyone would relocate for a few months. Before, when the sea rose, our ancestors used to go somewhere else until it went back, and then they'd go back to their houses. Today, it's still happening. But your ancestors left and returned. Do you think you will be able to return? I don't think so. The sea is still there. Climate change means weather events that used to be rare are common. Floods that happened once every century now arrive once a decade. There's no going back, and it's getting worse. Kids at this camp used to attend a school that faced the sea. It was destroyed in the flood. So kindergarten principal Amadun Jai is raking the sand before the first day of school here at Jogop. These kids, they're used to swimming and playing. That's what they know. But here, there's no water, no river, no sea. When a kid says to you, why did we have to leave our home? Why did we have to leave the sea? What answer do you give? 
The first thing I tell them is that there was a catastrophe. Your house has been destroyed by the sea. We step inside the classroom tent and it's sweltering. It's very warm inside, but on the walls I can see somebody has colored in a Santa Claus. And then there's an alphabet on the wall. I'm trying to imagine being a child who spends all day playing in the sea and suddenly coming here where you are surrounded by sand and you are sitting in this school where it's very hot and you're being told to learn. It must be so jarring. Yeah, it's difficult. But whatever situation these kids find themselves in, they can adapt to it. I wanted to know what life was like before the catastrophe, before the waters rose. So I asked the community leader Mamadou Jam to take us back to the house that he abandoned. And he agreed. We reached the community of Gendar. If I expected a cordoned off disaster area, it's the opposite. There's a cacophony of life here. In contrast to the camp's orderly tan monochrome, here, waves crash, birds wheel, wind blows, a pelican stands in the road. Fishing boats in rainbow colors line the shore, and the smells of fish, salt, and cooking fires mingle in the air. Mamadou points. This is where the edge of his house used to be. Now it's rubble. He leads us back to a room that's still standing. The deep blue walls are stippled with white and green where salt water and wind have peeled away the paint. I was born in this room. And now? Now what is this place? It's the sea. The sea was right up to here. Tell me what you think as you stand here. What is in your mind? In this life, a person is only linked with his origins, something you inherited from your parents. When you lose it, you lose everything. He'll never forget the day the water arrived. Yeah, like it was today. There was no storm, just a very high tide. When you were in the house and the water was coming in, can you show us how high it was? It was the water was up to your hips. I was afraid for the children and the women. I was trying to save them. When all the children and the women were rescued, that's when I started being afraid for myself. Many of the houses on this street were destroyed. A younger man named Amsatu Fall has rebuilt some of the walls in his family's house by tying fishing rope around plastic panels from the UN camp shelters. I did all this myself because the sea made the walls fall down. Most of his family has abandoned this neighborhood for the camp. But he stays here, at the edge of the water. He is a fisherman who sold his fishing boat a year ago. He's decided there's no future for him in Senegal. Going to Spain is the only way for me to solve all my family's problems. I tried many times, but every time my spiritual leader said, no, it's not time. He has a bag packed, ready for when the time is right. He shows it to us. And it's actually a bucket with a tight lid. In this bucket with a lid, there's basically one T-shirt, waterproof top and pants, uh, and then religious beads. And, and that's it. You start a new life, and that's all you carry. His six-year-old daughter, Ndaye, nuzzles up against his legs. Your daughter has been close to you this whole time. You clearly love her very much. 
Will it be difficult for you to go to Spain and not see her for a long time? <laughs> wow, madam. Let me talk. Man, kaise sumo paras blog? Sumo to wahnit. Mom sumo yala today. Yeah. I named her after my mom. It's true, I love her very much. The problem is, I'd rather travel and send money back home instead of staying here and seeing the misery here. When you imagine your life in Spain, what do you think it will be? My dream is to work hard and give money to my kids and my mom so she can at least have food for a month. Because ever since I was born, I've never seen my mom have money for a full month. He's 37 years old. I ask if he still has money for the journey from the fishing boat that he sold a year ago, and he says, no, no, I won't have to pay. Because I'm a fisherman, I understand the sea. I have useful skills for a journey like this. So will you be the captain of the boat? Usually I'm the captain of the boat, so I might be the captain. This is the great responsibility of so many people's lives in your hands. Yeah, I'll treat them all like myself. We have the same needs. If I am successful, everyone is successful. But if not, we all fail. When he sold his boat a year ago, he explained to his children that he was going away, maybe for a very long time. By now, he thinks they've forgotten. But he doesn't forget it for a minute. He says when his spiritual advisor tells him to go, he will leave the drowning city of San Luis. He looks out at the crashing waves and says, it could even be tonight. Over the coming weeks, our journey leads us to Morocco and on to Spain to see how these dreams of a better life compare to the reality of global migration in an age of xenophobic politics. Everybody who leaves and goes to Europe on a boat, there's a moment when they wish they hadn't. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy today. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. In business news, the head of a trade association for the local biotech industry is leaving after just over a year on the job. The Mass Biotechnology Council announced today CEO Joe Boncori will resign by the end of the year to open a consulting practice. Boncori left his role as a state senator last year to meet to lead MassBio. The organization will elevate its chief operating officer, Kendall Berlin O'Connell, to CEO. On Wall Street today, the stocks closed up, the Dow up a tenth of a percent at 33,748. NASDAQ up a little more than one and three quarters percent at 11,323. And the S&P 500 closed up about 1% at 39.93.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kafar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, showers and possibly a thunderstorm tonight. Some of those storms could produce heavy rain and gusty winds. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Showers continue into the morning before giving way to first cloudy and then sunny skies. Still some gusty winds. The highs will be around 73. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. It is a stunning collapse. Today, one of the largest platforms for trading cryptocurrency filed for bankruptcy. It's called FTX, a company that earlier this year was paying for commercials like this one, which aired during the Super Bowl. It shows a crypto booster trying to win over a skeptical Larry David. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. (laughs) What was meant as a funny joke then seems quite prescient today. NPR's David Gura joins us now with more. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what exactly happened with FTX today? Well, on Friday before the markets opened, FTX announced on Twitter it filed for bankruptcy. And the numbers in this filing are staggering. First of all, It's not just FTX. It's FTX plus more than 130 affiliated companies. And we've learned that their combined liabilities are between 10 and $50 billion. That's what they owe to their creditors. And there are more than 100,000 of them, a group that includes individual investors. And critically, the company also announced its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, who is barely 30 years old, (laughs) by the way. Bankman-Fried is no longer FTX's CEO. It has a new leader, John Ray, someone who has a lot of experience cleaning up big messes like this one, Elsa. He was brought in after Enron collapsed. Wow, the Enron cleanup guy is now taking over? Yeah, this implosion was very fast. I'm going to walk you through what happened okay. here. One of Sam Bankman-Fried's rivals, the head of another crypto exchange called Binance, raised some questions about FTX's finances. This was just a few days ago. Then he announced plans to withdraw a lot of assets from FTX. That spooked FTX's customers so badly that the company faced a liquidity crunch and froze withdrawals. And here's where things took a really dramatic turn. The head of Binance, once again, Sam Bankman-Fried's rival, offers FTX a life raft, says he'll buy the company, then only a few hours later walks away from that deal. And at that point, Elsa, the writing was really on the wall. Yeah. Can you just tell us more about Sam Bankman-Fried? This is the 30-year-old who was at the center of all of this. Yeah. Aside from being very young, he was until very recently a multi-billionaire known for almost always wearing shorts and T-shirts and running (laughs) shoes. The New York Times called him studiously disheveled, but also a crypto emperor. Here he is at a conference recalling how he got into this business. 
it sort of looked like, oh, wow, maybe there are actually ridiculously good trades to do here. And, and I jumped in and I think it was, I spent like a year trading before I could really tell you what a Bitcoin was. Bit self-effacing, but it didn't take long until he was a celebrity, first within crypto, then beyond crypto, palling around with Tom Brady, signing endorsement deals. The NBA arena in Miami is named after FTX. Beckman Fried recently shared the stage with former President Clinton and former President, uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair, and he was you know, really one of the biggest donors to Democratic candidates. Wow, what a fall. Well, where does all of this ultimately leave investors in FTX and its customers? Yeah, no one is feeling very optimistic, and this isn't going to get resolved quickly. This week, we've seen at least one prominent venture capital firm, which invested more than $100 million in this company, throw in the towel. Sequoia wrote down its investment to zero, meaning the firm regards it as worthless. But it wasn't just venture capital backing FTX. A pension plan for teachers in Canada invested $95 million in U.S. dollars. And there are lots of retail investors, lots of people who have deposits with FTX who don't know what's going to happen to those assets. Lee Reiners is the head of the Duke Financial Economic Center. Crypto's problem is that there's no lender of last resort to step in and provide emergency liquidity to prop up the system, right? The Federal Reserve is not going to, to step in here. So there's no backstop. And yeah. Elsa, on top of that, FTX's U.S. platform says it may halt trading in a few days. So, David, what do you think this collapse means for, like, the wider crypto universe? Yeah, crypto was not in good shape before this happened. Bitcoin is down about 75 percent from a year ago when it hit its all-time high. We've been in this crypto winter, as investors call it, a prolonged downturn. And this is making things worse. Right now, there is a sense of despair in the crypto world and a sense that this collapse may be what ultimately gets Washington to step in. There's been a lot of talk about the need for regulation and what it might look like. This could open the door to that, Elsa. We know that key committees, including the Senate Banking Committee, is monitoring this closely, and so is the White House. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. This week's installment of My Unsung Hero from Hidden Brain is in honor of Veterans Day. In 2008, Jessica Israelison was having a hard time raising three young kids, going to college, serving in the U.S. Air Force as a medical technician. In September of that year, a family member died by suicide. Israelison was devastated. But one thing she didn't have to worry about was Christmas. Members of her unit pitched in to buy gifts for her family, even though Jessica had just decided to leave the military. And so I waited at the door and I heard that knock. And I answered the door, and it was April, and all the presents were in big black bags. We went through, and she's like, made, made me go through and make sure everything that I'd asked for was in there, that we weren't missing anything. And she helped me put them upstairs in my closet so we could hide them. So when the kids came back, they didn't see anything. She knew that I had gone through a major loss, and she was like the mom for me in my unit. And so... I remember that she didn't have to say very much to me. Um, she just kind of hugged me and told me, this will pass, it will get better. And the unit really is worried about you and they hope you're gonna be okay. And I'm so glad that um, we could help you again one more time for Christmas. And I felt that I wasn't alone, that I was cared for even though I was leaving the military, which was a very hard decision for me to make. I felt so much care and so much peace. I hope that someday I get to be April shy for somebody else because it changed my life. 
it has reminded me of the core value of the Air Force, which is service before self. And so that's what I try to give for my veterans when I'm in the healthcare system. I actively look for them and I let them know they're not alone, that they can do this, that we can get them feeling better. Let's get your blood drawn. Let's find out what's going on because you deserve to be happy. You worked so hard for our country. And so I, I honor them when I take care of them. They deserve it. They deserve that respect. Jessica Israelison of Colorado Springs. If you're based in the U.S. and you or someone you know is in crisis, you can reach the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. Florida's shrimp fishing industry was hit especially hard when Hurricane Ian tore through the state. More than a month on, longtime shrimpers are barely hanging on as the industry remains at a standstill. You have to produce a lot of shrimp to stay afloat, and that's what we were doing for the last year, just staying afloat. Tune in to our show Monday. Listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at mos.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. In his new movie, Armageddon Time, succession actor Jeremy Strong takes a trip back in time in a drama about race relations and the American family. All of the things that are hanging in the balance today are things that were hanging in the balance in this moment in 1980. Also the latest midterm results and the balance of power in Congress, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Election workers in Nevada continue to tally hundreds of thousands of ballots that could determine control of the U.S. Senate and the shape of President Biden's next two years in office. Joe Gloria, the Clark County Registrar of Voters, gave an update earlier today on where the count stands. Last night we ran 12,000 309 ballots through, and they were reported in last night's report. As of this morning, we received 104 pieces of mail, uh, which is obviously a lot lower than we had been. We have one more day tomorrow uh, to pick up mail, and that'll be the last of the mail. In the race for U.S. Senate, Republican candidate Adam Laxalt is holding on to the lead over Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, but that contest is still too close to call. 
In Arizona, an update of nearly 80,000 ballots from the state's most populous county last night continued an encouraging trend for Democratic candidates, who padded slim leads in most major statewide races. Ben Giles from member station KJZZ in Phoenix reports. Democratic gubernatorial hopeful Katie Hobbs added roughly 7,500 votes to her narrow lead over Republican Carrie Lake. Lake now trails Hobbs by just shy of 27,000 votes. And Senator Mark Kelly continued to add to his lead over Trump-backed Blake Masters. The Republican businessman trails Kelly well over 100,000 votes in a race that could determine control of the U.S. Senate. With more than half a million votes left to count across Arizona, those races and others remain too close to call. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 32 points, the Nasdaq Composite up 209. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA's paratransit service, The Ride, is operating at limited capacity and with delays. It's urging customers to consider alternative methods of transportation today. T-spokesperson says technology problems are to blame. The ride is a pickup and drop-off service for people with disabilities who can't use other kinds of public transit. Eversource says customers should prepare for potential outages caused by the remnants of Hurricane Nicole. Strong wind gusts and heavy rain are in the forecast starting tonight. The energy company says it has extra crews ready to quickly respond to outages. But Eversource spokesperson William Hinkle says there are a few steps customers should take to be ready for outages during any emergency. We also encourage our customers to build an emergency kit with essential items, things like water, non-perishable food, uh, medication, but also um, making sure that all of your cellular and wireless devices are, are fully charged. The utility National Grid says it, too, has been preparing for days. It's watching the forecast and has crews ready to respond. Governor Charlie Baker recognized Massachusetts veterans today at a ceremony at the State House. As WBUR's Laura Craigle reports, this is his final Veterans Day as governor. Thanking a crowd of veterans and their families, Baker said military service and the freedoms it helps protect is what enables all other kinds of public service, including his own as a politician. I cherish the time and the chance and the opportunity that I've been granted to serve. It makes me whole. It fills me. It feeds me. And I am so grateful to those veterans who made it possible. Baker and other state officials also honored service members who are missing in action, were taken as prisoners of war, or died as a result of illness or post-traumatic stress related to their service. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. Governor-elect Mara Healey is vowing to prioritize Western Massachusetts when she takes office in January. She visited Pittsfield this week. She says she wanted to show her appreciation for the region. We will be an administration that has a strong presence around the state, and especially in places that for far too long have not felt the love, so to speak, in terms of the money and the resources. Healey says she will focus her work on economic development and affordable housing. It's 4.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent. Runs now through December 4th, theumbrellastage.org. Showers, possibly a thunderstorm tonight. Some of those storms could produce heavy rain, gusty winds, the lows around 64 degrees. Showers continue into the morning tomorrow before giving way to first cloudy, then sunny skies. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadwarney. And I'm Elsa Chang. For House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, what once appeared to be a smooth ride to becoming House Speaker is now facing an uncertain path. Here's McCarthy still defending his plans on Fox News. Look, I'm not concerned. Think about this. Since I've been leader for the last four years, we've only gained seats. It's the goal of winning the majority. We won the majority. I think I accomplished the goal that we wanted to. People can have input. We want to have a very open input process. We're going to have a smaller majority. So we're going to find that we work together. Now, of course, we're still not clear if Republicans have won a majority in either chamber of Congress with votes still being counted. And in the meantime, Republicans have been left with plenty of time for finger pointing and worry among their ranks. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Rosales joins us now with more. Hey, Claudia. Hey there. Okay, so like we said, we still don't know where things will land in terms of control of Congress. But what are Republicans saying to each other right now? Right. There's clearly anger. We can hear it in their public comments in terms of how far Republicans fell short from expectations of a red wave they expected to see this week. And so it's created an inflection point for the party, and many are pointing at former President Trump as being part of the setback that they saw take place. One of those is Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears. She spoke to CNBC about a need to move away from Trump. A true leader understands when they have become a liability. A true leader understands that it's time to step off the stage. And the voters have given us that very clear message. And this is part of a running theme we're hearing from Republicans across several places, including one retiring Republican in the Senate, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, who blamed Trump for the fail- failures they saw this week. And we've seen this inflection point before this happened after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So this is another test of the tie between Trump and the GOP going forward. But he has seen the brunt of the blame so far. Well, given all this tension, Claudia, where does McCarthy's bid to be House? speaker stand right now. Right. That is very uncertain now because it was expected to be a slam dunk, especially if Republicans did see this red wave. And Mm -hmm. now there's even questions whether Democrats may have a narrow path to taking control of the House. Now, all signals point to Republicans perhaps taking control with a narrow margin. And if that happens, that's going to be tough for him to pull off because there's even some members of the House Freedom Caucus who are already saying they do not know if they want him to be the speaker. Now, members themselves for the Republican Party in the House will have their own vote or discussion on whether he should be speaker by the end of the month. But it has to go to the full House floor next year, and he'll need 218 votes 
to get there. Exactly. Okay, well, meanwhile, in the other chamber, we saw one Republican senator call for a delay to their leadership elections. Can you talk more about that? Right. This was a surprising statement today from Florida Senator Marco Rubio. He just won re-election in that state, and he said that the leadership vote for that chamber for Senate Republicans should be postponed. He said, first, we need to make sure that those who want to lead us are genuinely committed to fighting for their priorities and values of the working Americans who brought them big wins in states like Florida. And so this was part of a tweet uh, that he sent out today. So that's very uncertain. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell looked very certain to lead the Republicans in the Senate, but we'll see where that conversation goes, whether it picks up traction, and perhaps they will be seeing uncertainty as well with their elections. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you much. In 1986, the Challenger launch shocked the country. Just we have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are looking at uh, checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point. Just over a minute into its flight, the space shuttle broke apart in the sky. All seven crew members were killed. Yesterday, NASA confirmed that a piece of the shuttle was recently discovered off the coast of Florida. A documentary crew searching for World War II-era wreckage found the debris on the ocean floor. Here to talk with us about this is Jennifer Lavazer. She is a curator at the National Air and Space Museum. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So what do we know about the piece that they recovered? Well, I mean, looking at the images that have been released, it's quite it's, it's a very obviously a piece of the orbiter. Hmm. Um, if you go and visit any of the space shuttles, you'll notice that the tiles that protect the vehicle for re-entry, those black tiles on the bottom, have a very obvious pattern, just like tiles on a floor. And uh, this, the visuals that we've seen so far really identify it as a part of the orbiter with those tiles. What is NASA likely to do with it? Well, NASA has in storage, uh, set aside uh, down in Florida, all of the pieces, all of the debris that's been recovered from both Challenger and Columbia. And so this is likely to join that. Um, There are a few pieces of the vehicles on display down at the Kennedy Space Center. And, you know, there's possibility maybe that this would go on display someday, but really it's been in the ocean for over 35 years and they'll need to take care of it first. Yeah. This discovery reopens some decades-old wounds. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said in a statement that the Challenger accident was a tragedy that will, quote, forever be seared into the collective memory of our country. What made the Challenger accident so devastating? Well, NASA was really, you know, selling the space shuttle program as an opportunity for more people to fly in space. And this was its signature mission. This was the mission when a teacher would fly in space. And so... The nation's children, school children, were really wrapped into this. And I was one of those school children myself, (laughs) sitting on the floor of my fourth fourth grade classroom, watching it live on television. And all of the teachers I knew at the time were equally excited about the possibility that one of them could someday go into space and that this would be an indicator that more people could go into space. And so having um, watched it live on television, it really, I think the idea of it's being seared into the collective memory is probably the most appropriate comment I can think of in that I've heard the same story come from 
thousands of people basically over the years that they likewise were sitting on a classroom floor watching it live on television. It's something you don't easily forget. It's really painful still to watch. I know it would certainly be painful for the families to watch, but it's also painful as a memory for us as Americans to think about such a devastating moment in our history. And we should say that the crew included teacher Krista McAuliffe, part of that teacher in space program you're talking about. NASA is planning to send people to the moon for the Artemis mission. How did the loss of Challenger and the shuttle Columbia in 2003, how do they impact future missions? Well, they give NASA a lot to think about, and Mm -hmm. part of that is about taking risks. Of course, to get into space is a very complicated thing, and so we really have to sit back and think about what kinds of risks are worth it. And so NASA had in the reporting um, and all of the studies done after both of the tragedies, a moment to reflect on its own management on its own management of technology and the way in which it would go through a process in order to be confident at launch. That they could send them up. And of course, when humans are involved in those launches, we need to be particularly careful. And so with the Artemis One launch potentially coming up soon, they're going to mark off every single step on their checklist and make sure they are absolutely ready before they hit the launch button. Jennifer Lager from the National Air and Space Museum, thank you. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Kurt Vonnegut was born a hundred years ago today. The late author wrote satirical and darkly humorous novels that appealed to the youth culture of the 1960s. And those books won him a cult-like following. But his work is still relevant today. Tom Vitale has the story. In 1991, Kurt Vonnegut told me he was disappointed in America. I'm sorry that America isn't a greater success than it is because we're so wealthy and we've done so very little comparison to what we might have done in creating an ideal society. Vonnegut wrote novels about the irrationality of governments and the senseless destruction of war. In 1987, he said he was determined to write about war without romanticizing it. My own feeling is that civilization ended in World War I, and we're still trying to recover from that. Much of the blame is the malarkey uh, that artists have created to glorify war, romantic pictures of battle and and of the dead and, and men in uniform and all that. And I did not want to have that story t- told again. When I look at the faces of young people who are holding up signs protesting a Supreme Court decision or calling for reform or espousing a cause, I see Vonnegutians. Charles J. Shields is author of the 2011 biography, And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life. What Vonnegut has to say to a a young person now has the same effect as it did on young people who were facing uh, the war in Vietnam, a government at the time that seemed indifferent to what the populace wanted. So as long as there are young people who care, Vonnegut will matter. Vonnegut's novels were informed by his experience in World War II when he was a 22-year-old soldier captured by the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge. That writing resonates today, says biographer Charles Shields. What's happening in Ukraine is very much like World War II. It's the same abject desire for conquest. It involves the same 
demeaning effect on humanity. Vonnegut's breakthrough to millions of readers came in 1963 with his fourth novel, Cat's Cradle, about a secret military experiment called Ice-9 that leads to the destruction of civilization. But his most striking anti-war sentiment came six years later and was quickly adapted by Hollywood. This is Schlachthof 5. 5 is English 5. Schlacht is slaughter. Hof is house. Schlachthof 5. Slaughterhouse 5, your house. Slaughterhouse 5 depicts the firebombing of Dresden by Allied warplanes in 1945. The city was reduced to rubble. More than 20,000 civilians were killed. Like the novel's hero, Kurt Vonnegut was an American POW imprisoned in a Dresden slaughterhouse during the air raid. Afterwards, he was forced to remove decaying bodies from flooded basements around the city. The destruction of Dresden was my first experience with really fantastic waste. <laughs> it's to burn down a habitable city and a beautiful one at that. So I was simply impressed by the wastefulness, terrible wastefulness, the meaninglessness of of war. Kurt Vonnegut died after a fall at the age of 84. In 1991, he told me he'd always have an audience because his books say, hey, you're not alone. For NPR News, I'm Tom Vitale in New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, award-winning Uruguayan singer-songwriter Jorge Drexler comes to Boston. You'll hear from Drexler on his process and how the pandemic affected his songwriting. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. While Election Day is past, we're still making sense of what happened. Keep it here as NPR and WBUR follow the remaining races and key issues. And keep listening to 90.9 WBUR for updates and what comes next. In the forecast, showers will be coming next tonight, possibly a thunderstorm as well. Some of those storms could produce heavy rain and gusty winds. Lows will be around 64 degrees. Showers continue into the morning tomorrow before giving way to first cloudy and then sunny skies. We'll still have some gusty winds. The highs will be around 73 degrees. Partly sunny, cooler on Sunday. Slight chance of some rain first thing in the morning. The highs will be around 54 degrees. Monday and Tuesday should be sunny. The highs will be in the mid-40s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ceres, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. Are cultural and economic forces changing boyhood, manhood, and even fatherhood? Richard Reeves says... Many men and many boys are really struggling in school, in the workplace, in the family. And unless we pay serious attention to the problems of boys and men, they're just going to fester. That's why he says true gender equality means helping men, too. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Steve Brown. Uruguayan singer-songwriter Jorge Drexler took an unusual path toward a music career. Although he played instruments as a child, Drexler first became a doctor and didn't start recording professionally until he was 30 years old. Over the last 30 years, he's released 14 albums and won multiple Latin Grammy Awards. In 2005, he became the first Uruguayan to win an Oscar for his song Al Otro Lada del Rio from the Motorcycle Diaries. Clavo mi remo en el agua. Llevo tu remo en el mío. Creo que he visto una luz al otro lado del río. Drexler comes to Boston tomorrow to perform songs from his latest album, which came out earlier this year. WBUR's Simone Rios spoke to Drexler about the impact of the pandemic on his songwriting and his love for his native Uruguay. My first question actually comes from a friend in Uruguay. He asked me to ask you if you consider yourself a citizen of the world or a citizen of Uruguay or both. Well, I feel at home in Porto Alegre. I feel at home in Medellin. I feel at home in Madrid. I feel at home in Temuco, in Chile, in Guadalajara, Mexico. I'm very lucky. Music has given me a feeling of belonging to many places, regardless of whether or not that implies citizenship, uh, which is a legal concept. El cantautor y su computadora, el pastor y su afeitadora, el despertador que ya está anunciando la aurora y en el telescopio se demora la última estrella. La máquina la hace el hombre. Y es lo que el hombre hace con ella. Jorge, your songs seem so elaborate and unlike anything else that's been written by you or anyone else. Talk about your process of composing a song, how a song begins and how it develops. Mm. Songs you're trying to write do not come out of the gate, but rather you have to achieve this mental state in which you are so open so that whatever you hear or read or see sticks with you and can turn into a song. Writing is difficult not just from a technical point of view of writing lyrics and music. It's also hard from an emotional point of view, because you really put yourself to the test when you write. My favorite song of yours is Aquiles por su talones, Aquiles. This translates to Achilles is Achilles because of his heel. Se siente lo que se siente En el centro del centro silente Tenga o no tenga evidente sentido Can you remember writing this? Sí, me acuerdo. La, la empecé a escribir en Río de Janeiro. Yes, I remember. I started writing in a hotel room in Rio de Janeiro, and I think everything came out at the same time, the lyrics and the music. It's a song that I love very much. Why? Because it helps us to live with our defects, actually to give thanks to our defects, knowing that our defects mark us as much or more than our virtues. Tanto o más que nuestras virtudes. Y en lo más sutil de los cuerpos So this performance in Boston on Saturday is going to be one of your first since the pandemic hit. 
Talk about the impact that the pandemic had on your musical process. The pandemic was very hard for me as a composer. Uh, I wrote a lot, but I couldn't finish the songs. I was missing the final stage of writing a song, which is the act of sharing it. Before the pandemic, at different friends' houses, I would play the songs I was writing for an album. And right there, it helped me to finish aspects of the song, simply, simply playing it for other human beings. I didn't have that during the pandemic, and that was a big challenge. That's where the song from my latest album, Tinta y Tiempo, or Ink and Time, comes from. It's a kind of mantra written by a writer for himself, asking myself not to get impatient, not to try to engrave my words in granite, but to let them go in the wind and trust that time and ink will do their job. And it worked. I want to ask you about your native country of Uruguay. It's seen as one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America. In fact, the New York Times had an article recently that depicted Uruguay as a model of sustainability for the world. Being Uruguayan yourself, do you also see it that way? I think that Uruguay, more than prosperity, uh, because it is not a rich country, it is a country that is very rich in democracy. It has a very strong democratic spirit. We have political dialogue. When a president is elected, the previous president, even if he's not from his political party, accompanies their successor as they assume the presidency. In Uruguay, uh, we have three and a half million inhabitants in a sparsely populated country, but we have so many figures in literature and in music and in cinema and in dance and in theater. We have a great cultural development and we have our own identity. With all this fondness that you have for your country, you live in Spain now. Um, do you ever think about returning to live in Uruguay? I have three children who were born in Spain, and if I were to live in Uruguay, uh, I would lose a lot of contact with them. But yes, I would like to have a mixed life, like the late Uruguayan poet Mario Benedetti, living a few months in Montevideo and a few months in Madrid. I would really love that. And I'm on my way to trying to do it, but I still have a few years to go. Jorge Drexler's new album is called Tinta y Tiempo. He performs Saturday night at John Hancock Hall in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, 
containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 68 degrees in Boston at a minute before 5 o'clock. Coming up at 5 as All Things Considered continues. How redistricting and the impact of new congressional maps on the midterm elections. That's ahead here on WBUR. Showers, possibly a thunderstorm tonight. Some of those storms could produce heavy rain and gusty winds. The lows will be around 64 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this Thanksgiving. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Where the kids play, we come out, play cornhole with the kids, barbecue out here, and just enjoy it. In Cincinnati, many renters are aspiring to buy their own homes, even in a tough housing market. It's Friday, November 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Now one city agency is buying houses to sell them back to renters at affordable prices. Also ahead, we'll take a look at redistricting and the impact of new congressional maps on the midterm elections. And President Biden went to the UN Climate Conference in Egypt to say the U.S. is leading urgent action to reduce global warming trends, but it may not be fast enough or sufficient. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Speaking at international climate talks in Egypt, President Biden says the U.S. will meet its global commitments to fight climate change. NPR's Lauren Summer has more on Biden's speech at COP27, where so far there's been no major progress toward limiting dangerous levels of warming. President Biden urged countries around the world to cut their emissions faster and to invest in renewable energy instead of coal. Climate crisis is about human security, economic security, environmental security, national security, and the very life of the planet. At the climate talks, developing countries have been pushing the U.S. and wealthier countries to help pay for the damages from climate impacts like extreme storms. Biden says he'll work to make sure the U.S. fully funds its climate commitments, but that will largely depend on the outcome of the midterm elections and who ultimately controls Congress. Lauren Summer, NPR News. Ukrainians are triumphantly welcoming their soldiers back into the city of Kherson after eight and a half months of Russian occupation. NPR's Jason Bobian reports Ukrainian troops entered Kherson today after Russian forces rapidly pulled out of the city. 
Residents of Kherson streamed into the city center, waving yellow and blue Ukrainian flags, according to videos posted on social media. Ukrainian soldiers got a hero's welcome as they entered a city that originally fell to Moscow in the first days after the Russian invasion. Russia's defense ministry says the last of its troops withdrew from the city to the east bank of the Dnipro River. The retreat is the latest stunning defeat for Russian President Vladimir Putin's forces. Local Ukrainian officials warn that some Russian troops remain on the west bank of the Dnipro, and they caution that sporadic fighting may continue in the hours and days ahead. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Nikopol, Ukraine. Vote counting continues in four states as the country awaits the results of close House and Senate races in key states and therefore control of Congress. While Georgia's is headed for a runoff next month, Senate votes are being counted in Alaska, where the winner will be a Republican, as well as in Arizona and Nevada, where tightly contested races for the governorship and House are also still being counted. In Las Vegas, Klaus Clark County Registrar of Voters, Joe Gloria, says 90% of the votes have been counted, but he says they're still getting ballots in the mail. We've got a little over 50,000 ballots that still need to be counted. 15,900 ballots are currently in tabulation behind us here. There are 34,130 currently being worked on by the counting board. Wall Street ended the day higher. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Administrators in Watertown say they're likely to appeal a ruling that found the city's police department discriminated against a female officer. The jury awarded the former officer more than $4 million this week in Middlesex Superior Court. The former police detective said she was sexually harassed and faced retaliation after reporting dangerous conduct by fellow officers following the search for a Boston Marathon bombing suspect. Boston City Councilors are calling on Walgreens to reopen three stores in the city that it closed this week or refrain from opening new locations in Boston. Two councilors introduced a resolution at a meeting this week after the pharmacy chain announced the closures. The three locations include Roxbury, Mattapan and Hyde Park. A hearing on the resolution will be scheduled. Walgreens says store closures take into account the dynamics of a local market and changes in buying habits. There are a number of events across Massachusetts today for Veterans Day. The American Legion's Post 76 in Jamaica Plain held a celebration of military service this afternoon. A speaking program included remarks by Boston's Commissioner of Veterans Services, Robert Santiago. Army veteran Joe Rossi is post commander. He says he hopes people take time to remember why the holiday exists. There's people that actually sacrifice their lives, either going to war, not coming back from war, some have lost uh, limbs. It's just for people to really, you know, sit back and remember and appreciate what they have because of certain people. Veterans of the Korean and Second World Wars were in attendance. What was once Hurricane Nicole has weekend. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says Massachusetts could still see some significant effects. Well, Nicole's remnants are moving in. Scattered showers will become more widespread this evening. Then downpours and bedded thunder will push through tonight, wrapping up right around 10 to 11 a.m. tomorrow. Rain totals between an inch and an inch and a half won't cause big issues, 
but there will be some ponding of water, big puddles, localized street flooding. Expect wind gusts to 40 miles per hour in Boston, gusts to 55 miles per hour for the South Shore, Cape and Islands overnight into the morning. That may result in some isolated pockets of damage and outages. But the rain ends, the wind subsides, and actually the sun comes out quickly tomorrow, boosting our highs to around 70. And it'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow night, lows around 47, partly sunny and cooler on Sunday. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by PBS with Taken Hostage. American Experience tells the story of the Iran hostage crisis through eyewitness accounts. A two-night event beginning Monday at 9, 8 central on PBS. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. Election Day gave Americans a lot of information. I mean, we heard about race results, voter turnout, issues that mattered to most people. But what about the infrastructure underneath? What I'm talking about are the lines drawn to determine voting districts, what's called redistricting, which takes place every 10 years after a census. Michael Lee studies and writes about redistricting for the Brennan Center, and he is here with us now to help us sort through how redistricting is shaping the outcome of this midterm election. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Michael, you know, as results started coming in on Election Day, I was curious, which states were you especially keeping an eye on because of the way they redistricted? Well, I I think, you know, some of the fascinating states are Michigan and California, where independent commissions drew maps and where on paper it looks like there are a lot more competitive districts than there are elsewhere in the country. And likewise, in Michigan, many people thought the Michigan legislature might be up for grabs for the first time in many decades because of much fairer drawn maps than they had before. And so um, those are some of the states that we were watching from the, the positive side. But then mm-hmm. on the negative side, there are significantly skewed maps in states like Texas, Georgia, Florida, um, and Ohio, which many people thought going in might be greater than the majority that Republicans would have in the House. And that seems to have been borne out Florida, for example, probably gives Republicans four extra seats than they would have under a fairly drawn map. And so if, in fact, uh, Republicans have a very thin majority in the House, it is likely to be due to gerrymandering. Before we get there, let's discuss Michigan, because you had called that a bright star heading into these elections because of its use of an independent commission to redistrict. Can you talk about why an independent commission is kind of the model to you for how redistricting should happen? I think the place to start is when states have problems, it almost always is because you have single party control of the process, whether that is by Democrats or by Republicans. And invariably, the party in charge prioritizes their interest and the interest of incumbents ahead of everything else. And you saw that in Michigan last decade, where Michigan had some of the most gerrymandered maps in the country. And that commission ended up drawing some of the most competitive maps. I've called them jump ball maps for a jump ball state. (laughs) You know, Michigan is a perpetual battleground, but that didn't play out in its legislative battles. Under these maps, um, it it, it was night and day. The Michigan legislature changed control um, for the first time since 1983. Democrats now have control of the Michigan legislature, which you would expect in a year where Democrats did very well in Michigan. In future years, if Republicans do better, they have a chance to win it back. I want to talk about partisan gerrymandering now. And and we should note that, you know, both parties have engaged in partisan gerrymandering. But in this midterm election, does it look to you that Republicans are favored to win a majority in the House in large part because they had the upper hand in 2020 redistricting, because they went into this 
with a structural advantage? Republicans started off with control of 187 seats and Democrats only could draw 75. And that's because of, of who controls state legislatures. So Republicans had a very big advantage. And, and thanks to the 2019 Supreme Court ruling that greenlighted partisan gerrymandering, Republicans in states like Texas, Georgia, Florida, and Ohio um, were, were able to take advantage of that and draw maps that really are skewed in favor of their party. In Florida, Governor DeSantis pushed a very aggressive map that, that gave Republicans four additional seats. And it's not only the big states. It's Tennessee, for example, Republicans eliminated a Democratic seat in Nashville. In Utah, they eliminated a competitive seat in the Salt Lake City area. So all of that adds up. And so Republicans, or this election, have an advantage that I think will play out and almost certainly looks like to be a very, very closely divided House. So do you think there are more states that are going to be heading towards, like, the Michigan model of independent commissions to redistrict? You know, if lawmakers don't do it, I think in many states, voters will try to put things on the ballot because, you know, this is an issue that now resonates with voters in a way that it didn't. Gerrymandering, you know, people didn't know what it really meant. Now people do. There's a sense that the system is broken, our politics are broken, and the the, the way that maps are drawn are a big part of that. That is Michael Lee of the Brennan Center for Justice. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's hard enough to buy a home these days, given a massive housing shortage, inflation, and higher mortgage rates. Adding to the challenge, institutional investors. They've been buying up a record share of homes to rent out, and critics say it's taking some of the most affordable properties off the market. The, sin- the city of Cincinnati is pushing back. As NPR's Jennifer Ledden reports, a city agency outbid investors to buy homes itself so it can eventually sell them to renters. Demetrius Harper Edwards meets me at his house after work and before he takes his eight-year-old twins to soccer practice. He and his girlfriend, Saraya Yisrael, also have a two-year-old. He moves toys away. They spent the pandemic dreaming of buying a house, maybe even this house, which they rented for four years. Harper Edwards shows me the backyard they love. Where the kids play, we come out, play cornhole with the kids, barbecue out here, just enjoy it. He's a carpenter, she's a seamstress and designer. They've researched how to fix their credit and been saving for a down payment. Israel says buying a home would be especially meaningful for her, since as far as she knows, no one in her family ever has. My parents know. My mom and my grandmother, they were actually born in Alabama, so... She assumes her ancestors were slaves and says homeownership would change the face of our family. It means longevity. You know, it means that I can leave a place for my children. It can take some stress off of my children's shoulders just already. Suddenly this year, that dream got more real. Out of the blue, they got a letter saying the house they rent had changed hands. It was among nearly 200 homes owned by a California investment firm that went under. Other investors lined up with offers, but a city agency outbid them. And now it wants to help Yisrael and Harper Edwards buy the house. So it's just the universe playing out and just like, okay, you want your shot? Here it is. Their new landlord is the Port of Greater Cincinnati Development Authority, known as the Port. Laura Brunner heads it, and last year her staff did some digging and found institutional investors own at least 4,000 houses here. Most were bought for cheap after the 2008 housing crash, then turned into rentals. 
Brunner says this threatens to exacerbate the racial wealth gap in Cincinnati, where only a third of Black residents own homes. So we're really seeing in these low to moderate income neighborhoods, which is where these investments are, they're taking a significant amount of the inventory off the table and saying people don't get to own homes anymore. So they're really capturing them as renters. On top of that, she says her staff has found outside investors are more likely to hike rents, evict tenants, and let houses fall into disrepair. Just, you know, treat it like a cash cow. Take as much profits as you can, not pay your debt, and until you decide, okay, now I'm getting enough pressure put on me, I'll just walk. The California company that went defunct was Raineth Housing, and the port's move to buy up its properties is a risky experiment. Brenner doesn't know of any other public agency that's done it. So far, they've paid more than $16 million. If we have a chance to fight back on this really predatory practice, there is no question that we had to do it. David Howard is with the National Rental Home Council, and he says large investors fill a need especially as higher interest rates make it harder to buy a home. We're entering a period of time where I believe there will be greater demand for rental housing. And I think the industry has an important role to play in providing quality, affordably priced rental housing for people who either need or want that option. In Cincinnati, though, a number of properties the port has bought are in bad shape. In the kitchen of a three-bedroom home, a contractor pulls up nails from a saggy floor with a large hole. Facilities manager Ron Schaus says this house was vacant. He thinks it flooded after pipes froze. Floor was rotten. Pulled it up. It's a lot more rotten than we thought. So cabinets are rotten. So where the original scope didn't include cabinets and such, we have to put them in now. Some homes with tenants also need work. There have been broken furnaces, leaky roofs, mold. One family has been using a toilet that's not connected to a pipe. Expensive rehabs like this set up a brutal numbers game. The port's plan is to make back its money from renting and eventually selling the homes. But the whole point is to keep rents affordable and sales prices low enough that people can pay. To help tenants get ready to buy, it's partnered with a local nonprofit that specializes in that. Thank you all for coming out this evening. Hope Wilson is with Working in Neighborhoods and greets a dozen people at this homeownership workshop. She walks them through credit history, what banks consider for a loan, and the extra cost beyond a mortgage. Like when something breaks, it's on you. And so either you're going to become very handy You're going to make friends with friends who are really handy, or you're going to have a great savings account. But even those in good financial shape can't compete with corporations, says sister Barbara Bush. She's executive director of Working in Neighborhoods and has seen people lose out again and again to large investors. They have cash on hand. They can close within 10 days. They can do all the things that makes both the real estate agent and the seller happy because, you know, this is going to be a quick thing. Buying homes directly from the port without that competition will be easier, though it may still take years for some renters to be ready. Among the first on track to buy are Demetrius Harper Edwards and Soraya Yisrael. He's dealing with a couple of old payday loans and has applied for student debt relief. I'm checking off all these boxes and I'm just like, oh, I didn't think I was going to be able to do that. But now it's like they just confirming like, oh, you qualify, you know, you ready. Harper Edwards' family are homeowners. In fact, one house has been passed down for 60 years. 
If this all works out, he says, maybe he'll buy another place one day and become a landlord himself. Jennifer Lutton, NPR News, Cincinnati. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 68 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, in the first months of the war in Ukraine, 15,000 babies were born. Those parents are raising the next generation of Ukrainians, children now as old as the war. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. In business news, a telecommunications executive and co-owner of the Celtics is giving $1 million to two organizations that provide meals and housing to young adults facing homelessness in the Boston area. Rob Hale's Fox Rock Foundation made the donation to Y2Y, Harvard Square, and Youth on Fire. On Wall Street today, stocks closed up. The Dow up about a tenth of a percent at 33,748. NASDAQ up a little more than one and three quarters percent at 11,323. And the S&P 500 closed up about one percent at 39.93. Marketplace will have all the business news at 6.30 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. Opening November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Innuendo, with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event, featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. WBUR's Last Seen podcast is back with new episodes surprising new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Seen wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Alyssa Nadborny. It's a big day in Ukraine. Ukrainian soldiers entered the city of Kherson to cheers and chants. Kherson is the capital of a Ukrainian region that Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed to have annexed into the Russian Federation. And it was one of the first cities that fell to the Russians early in the war. Many people there today are breathing a sigh of relief. Because for the last nine months, their lives have been interrupted, like many families across Ukraine, including those who had children during the war. In just the first two months of the war, 15,000 children were born in Ukraine. Their parents are raising the next generation of Ukrainians, children now as old as the war. Women gave birth in shelters and basements and in hospitals under attack. And I want to introduce you to three of them. We met Anna Mordakova outside her mother-in-law's house in a small village near the city of Chernihiv. 
Morikova laughs, bouncing her seven-month-old baby, Victoria. Crying is all she does, she says. Victoria was born weeks after Russia's invasion, on the floor of their basement. Russian forces were occupying the area. Their house had been destroyed. It also destroyed the baby gear they'd accumulated all winter. She recalls giving birth, saying there was no medicine, no supplies. Enemy soldiers brought a Russian doctor and a local nurse to help. Ortakova's older daughter, who is four, watched it all unfold. Her husband asked the soldiers and the Russian doctor, is there anywhere you can take us to get help? They were told the only option was a hospital in Belarus. But there were no guarantees. Would they ever be allowed to return to Ukraine? So the family decided on that cold basement floor to stay in Ukraine. Mordekova says she'll be forever grateful to Marina, the local nurse who cut the umbilical cord. Seven months later, the Russians are gone. And Victoria is healthy and restless. We can walk if you want. Listening to music helps, Mordekova says, as she pushes the stroller. But their house is destroyed, and they're now staying with their mother-in-law. Her husband is trying to find work. And they're still traumatized by what happened on that basement floor. She says they're still waiting to feel relief, to feel like they have control over their lives. Her older daughter, who's four, worries when she hears any new or loud sounds. But she says they are happy to at least be here, alive, and in Ukraine. Three hours away in Kyiv, Nelia Helenko is with her eight-month-old baby, Tade, in their high-rise apartment. You're such a quiet baby. He's teething and he's beginning to crawl. Helenkos tells me there are similarities between living with a newborn and living in a war. Like how everything is in the present tense. I'm here in this moment right now, she says. My world is sleep, eat, sleep, repeat, she says. And being present helps protect her from worrying about the war. But recent power outages have been a nightmare. They're on the 24th floor. No power means no elevator. They can't cook or have hot water. And the missile attacks last month in Kyiv have brought her right back to the explosions she heard while giving birth. They'd fled Kyiv for Zhytomyr, a city further west, where they had family. The hospital where she went for a C-section came under attack. All the windows were broken from nearby missile explosions. She ended up in the basement shelter. It was her post-op room. It was her everything, she says. They stayed in Zhytomyr with relatives for three months before they returned to Kyiv. Now they think about leaving again to Poland. She can already see baby Tade picking up on her stress, her worry. But staying in Ukraine, she says, has lessons too. I want him to understand just how precious life is, she says, especially his life as a Ukrainian. 
Я, в принципі, завжди себе ідентифікувала як українку, тому це для мене було I always thought about myself as a Ukrainian citizen, she says. And his birth made me even more sure. It's our home. Alisa. nice to meet you. Vladimir. Vladimir. Yes. And who is this? This is my daughter, Anna, the name. Across the city, Volodymyr Polishuk and his wife, Tatyana, are pushing baby Anna in her stroller to a playground near their apartment. They're spending lots of time with the baby, who they call their little cabbage, because the war has caused their work in construction to dry up. They argue about who she looks like more. They can't help but share funny videos. Look, here's one of Anna laughing at a ball. With the power frequently out, they play games by candlelight. And they're wanting to slow down time, to revel in every moment, even though they also want to speed up time to when there is no more war when the power is back. Tatiana also gave birth in a hospital shelter in Kyiv back in April. She's been having panic attacks on and off since. There's the lack of sleep, but Tatiana isn't sure if it's from feeding the baby or her nightmares from war. And the war is always on her mind. When she's breastfeeding, she sits with her back to the window, just in case there's an explosion. Have you thought at all about what you'll tell her about her birth? I'm not going to lie to her. A child should know their history, she says. But I don't want her to grow up hating. I don't want her to really even know the word war, she says, wiping away tears. It's very interesting. Uh, the brain it's don't understand. It's normal and you can just leave. And... Volodymyr, who is now holding the baby, says he's been wowed by the brain's ability to normalize fear, to allow them to feel extreme joy and extreme sadness at the same time. He looks down at baby Anna, all bundled up. The baby is our little victory, he says. And I am a happy father. Tatiana cuts in. And even despite everything, she says, I too am a happy mother. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 68 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, President Biden went to the U.N. Climate Conference in Egypt to say the U.S. is leading urgent action to reduce global warming trends, but it may not be fast enough or sufficient. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, showers, possibly a thunderstorm tonight. Some of those storms could produce heavy rain and gusty winds. The lows will be around 64 degrees. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org, and the British International School of Boston, thinking beyond traditional education, collaborating with MIT and Juilliard, open house November 20th, register at bisboston.org. I think European leaders realize that we're at a tipping point where things are about to get a lot worse. Maybe the sort of total nightmare scenario of of like widespread power outages in Europe has been averted, but the price of fixing that problem has been huge. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is leading a delegation at a United Nations climate summit in Egypt. Speaking on the sidelines of the conference, Pelosi repeated President Biden's calls for unity in the fight against global warming. We hope that this COP27 will be the threshold that we all cross to remove all doubt that we are, as a world, serious about saving the planet for the children to those affected most. President Biden called on world leaders at the summit to step up their ambitions to fight climate change, adding that the United States will reassert itself as a leader in the effort. Biden was the only leader of a major polluting country to attend the summit. The president is now heading to Cambodia to take part in conferences with Southeast Asian nations. The crypto empire's collapse continues. As NPR's David Gura reports, FTX has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Facing a liquidity crunch and lots of questions about how it's done business, FTX, one of the world's largest cryptocurrency trading platforms, has fallen apart in a matter of days after reporting indicated it was not fully solvent. That's led to massive withdrawals and upheaval. The company was previously valued at more than $30 billion. FTX and approximately 130 affiliated companies started bankruptcy proceedings in Delaware on Friday, and FTX has a new CEO. Sam Bankman-Fried, who founded the company and served in that role, has resigned. And he and FTX now face regulatory scrutiny, both in the U.S. and in the Bahamas, where the company is headquartered. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 32 points. The Nasdaq Composite up 209. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. It'll be current Governor Charlie Baker, not Governor-elect Mara Healey, who selects the interim general manager of the MBTA. T-Chief Steve Poftak is stepping down on January 3rd, two days before the end of Baker's term. Baker's office confirms that means Baker will appoint Poftak's immediate successor. Healy's transition team says Healy will conduct a search for a permanent GM. Senator Ed Markey is calling on Twitter officials to explain its verification process for users. Markey is asking the company to explain how it makes sure accounts are actually operated by the people they purport to be. Earlier this week, a Washington Post journalist obtained an account that claimed to be Markey, paying the company to become verified. Twitter has since paused the pay for verification program. Massachusetts' first ever Medals of Fidelity were awarded this morning during a Veterans Day ceremony at the State House. WBUR's Laura Craigle reports. The state passed legislation earlier this year to create the new category of military medals. 
Major General Gary Keefe of the state's National Guard says the award honors Massachusetts service members who died not in combat, but later, as the result of illnesses related to post-traumatic stress disorder or to exposure to toxins or other harmful materials. They took an oath to the Constitution, they did their job, and when they contracted this disease, they still did their job. The inaugural Medals of Fidelity were presented to relatives of four service members who served during World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and Operation Enduring Freedom. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. We'll get ready for a windy and rainy evening and overnight. The remnants of Hurricane Nicole are, uh, have started to arrive and will sweep through the region over the next several hours. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us with the latest details. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Steve. Great to be with you. Nice to hear you. Uh, what conditions are we seeing out there right now? What can we expect through tomorrow morning? Well, I can say this. I just drove through about an hour and a half of a little bit of light rain and some, you know, scattered shower activity. So this is not the main event. The main event is still to our west. We've got real heavy rain and downpours pushing through Connecticut and starting to come into the Berkshires down through Pennsylvania, New Jersey right now. So all of that is going to sweep through overnight tonight. Generally after midnight is when the heaviest stuff pushes in and it will last until tomorrow morning. I'm thinking like a 10 to 11 a.m., give or take the back edge comes in. So it is kind of fast moving as these remnants move through, um, but there may be some real heavy downpours and even a rumble of thunder possible while we're sleeping overnight tonight. How, how much rainfall do you expect we're going to get uh, in total? And, and should we be concerned about dangerous travel or, or flooding of any kind? Uh, I'm not overly concerned that, the, you know, this event will be a moderate or high impact, but there will be some low impact stuff. So about an inch to an inch and a half of rain is what I'm expected region wide. A little more possible in far western Massachusetts, western New England. Um, but in general, inch, inch and a half means, you know, there'll be big puddles. There'll be some ponding of water, maybe some low lying areas and some very localized urban centers. Uh, you know, Steve, this time of the year when the leaves are all on the ground and the drains are clogged, that sort of thing. But nothing I'm overly concerned about. Just take it slow and easy out there. The leaves make it a little bit slick in spots. Okay, maybe this will blow the rest of the leaves on my trees off and I can, I can rake them up once <laughs> Mine in Mine <all>. too, <laughs> yes. Or maybe they'll blow over to my neighbor's yard. Uh, oh, who's going to see the strongest uh, wind gusts and, and what uh, issues could those cause? So it is going to be a strong wind that's going to coincide with some of the heaviest downpours. So we actually have a wind advisory that's up for Cape Cod, the islands, the south coast, south shore. Uh, it kicks in at 10 p.m. tonight, but I'm anticipating the strongest winds between about 4 a.m. and 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. So it's a brief window, and those gusts will be to 40 miles per hour, which won't cause much of an issue. You know, it'll be windy for sure. But gusts to 55 miles per hour will be possible on Cape Cod and the islands out of the south-southwest gusts 40 to 50 on the South Shore and South Coast. So it's strong enough that, you know, you definitely want to secure items in those areas before the strongest wind comes in pre-dawn tomorrow. And it may result in some isolated pockets of, you know, outages or some limbs uh, coming down in some communities in those spots. May hear some uh, windows rattling tonight. Uh, is it unusual to have a hurricane uh, affect the U.S. so late in the year? 
You know, it's not, although I will say, you know, this is the second latest uh, hurricane in terms of hitting U.S. landfall that we've ever had. So I guess you could say it is a little bit uh, rare, although hurricane season officially does last until the end of November. So it's not totally uncommon. In fact, we've had some tropical systems that have hit outside of the window between June and November. So it it is late, but um, certainly not unheard of in history. Now, once the remnants pass through uh, in New England, there's some cooler temperatures in the forecast. Uh, Tell us about that. Yes. So uh, believe it or not, actually, the sun's going to come out real fast tomorrow afternoon once the back edge of the rain comes in. So uh, it actually turns into a decent afternoon tomorrow, albeit windy. um, But we're still going to be 70, 72 tomorrow. And then the cold air comes in tomorrow night. So Sunday, we don't get out of the low 50s. And then the theme next week is chilly. It's going to be probably in the 40s for daytime highs most most afternoons. You know, keep in mind the average high temperature this time of the year for mid-November is in the low 50s. So, you know, it's just slightly below average. It just seems a little extra chilly given the, you know, record warm start we had to the month for sure. Sure. I hate to even ask this, but uh, do you foresee any snowflakes uh, coming along with this uh, colder weather? Oh, I said the word snow. Oh. said the S word. Oh, man, the snowflakes. Honestly, the, I was just looking at some of our latest uh, weather guidance and I would be shocked if there aren't snowflakes somewhere this week. And by somewhere, I mean, you know, maybe the Berkshires, the hilly terrain, northern New England, um, because we have these shots of chilly air coming in. And think about it, if we're in the 40s during the day, we're definitely going to be in the 30s and some 20s at night. So there'll be some flakes dancing around. I don't anticipate anything in and around the Boston area. But, you know, somewhere like the Worcester Hills or, you know, Berkshires could see a few flakes out there, um, maybe midweek and then maybe towards the weekend. There's a couple disturbances we'll keep an eye on, but it doesn't look like any, you know, big snowmakers at this point, just kind of the festive first season, you know, snowflakes dancing around out there. Okay, I'll prepare myself for that. Uh, WBUR <laughs> Me meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Have a great weekend, Steve. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Nadwani. And I'm Elsa Chang. At the United Nations Climate Conference today, President Biden made some big promises about what the U.S. can do to help slow global warming. The meeting has highlighted the natural disasters like floods and droughts that are happening as world economies continue their dependence on fossil fuels. And President Biden put this plan on the table. An economy powered by clean, diversified, secure energy sources. Opportunities unlocked through innovation and cooperation to deliver equitable, more prosperous, more stable, and more just world for our children. Well, NPR's Ruth Sherlock is at the conference in Egypt in the Red Sea resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. And she's here to help us understand what President Biden's plans could mean. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Hi. Okay, so... 
I understand that President Biden was only on the ground in Egypt for something like three hours. It was just like a quick stop between other commitments. But can you tell us more about what he said? Well, he came with what he said was good news about the effort that the U.S. is making. Uh, President Biden spoke about the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, the recently passed bill that will see more than $300 billion spent on projects to develop renewable energy and limit carbon dioxide emissions. Here he is. Today, finally, thanks to the actions we've taken, I can stand here as President of the United States of America and say with confidence, the United States of America will meet our emissions targets by 2030. So the U.S. has pledged to cut carbon emissions by half from its 2005 baseline. And he also announced new plans to limit methane emissions. Methane is another powerful greenhouse gas that contributes to global warming. Right. Well, in recent years, there's been growing focus at these climate meetings on whether wealthier countries, who are the ones responsible for most of the carbon emissions causing climate change, whether they should pay poorer countries for the loss and the damage that those carbon emissions are causing. So how much did President Biden address that part of all this? Well, look, he announced some projects to help developing countries adapt to the worst effects of climate change, like floods and droughts. And he announced money to help Egypt develop its renewable energy sector. But none of this comes close to the $11 billion a year in assistance that Biden promised at last year's climate conference. Mm-hmm. Congress, though, has allocated considerably less so far. Biden has said he would keep trying to get Congress to act on the pledge. But this may be difficult, especially if the Republicans take the House of Representatives. So what reactions are you hearing so far to the U.S. plan? Well, you know, a lot of people welcome the fact that America is back in the conversation on climate change, but there's also a lot of frustration still that more is not being done, especially on the question of loss and damage. That's supporting developing countries who are among the least responsible for, but the worst hit by climate change. The U.S. is still one of the world's largest emitters of carbon dioxide. Omar Omawi, a climate activist with the group Muslims for Human Rights based in Kenya, told me he thinks that the complexities of getting funding through Congress isn't a good enough excuse for not doing more. Don't promise what you can deliver because it's about time that people are genuine, uh, are truthful to say what really they're going to do for this climate crisis that we're in today. You know, another point that lots of people here are making is that while the Inflation Reduction Act is a major development for fighting climate change in the U.S., the administration has also really ramped up its oil and gas production in the U.S. this year, partly in response to the war in Ukraine. Right. Well, that is NPR's Ruth Sherlock at the U.N. Climate Conference. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you very much. The Federal Reserve, specifically a Fed committee, meets several times a year to set interest rates. Lately, they've been raising rates to bring down historically high inflation. But what if a formula could do that work and maybe even do a better job? Darian Woods and Mary Childs from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain the Taylor Rule. The Taylor Rule is a formula that can automate how much to raise or lower interest rates to keep inflation steady. And its origins start in the 1970s. Back then, American monetary policy was a mess. Inflation was out of control and unemployment was high. John Taylor was an economist then, recently out of his PhD. He was working at the Council of Economic Advisors under President Ford. We had money growth high, money growth low. It didn't seem like the way we should be conducting policy. So I started with how can we conduct policy in a more understandable way? John was looking for a way to guide Fed officials towards keeping the economy growing steadily. Not too much inflation, not too much unemployment. 
But a lot of the recipes out there giving models for how the central banks should raise or lower interest rates had a lot of inputs and equations. John didn't think these models would work for policymakers. Gee, this recipe is so complicated. Can't we simplify it? We want it to be available for everybody. And in the early 1990s, John developed his recipe, which was essentially this, raise interest rates by more than the spike in inflation. So we've got this target for the Fed usually. This is the 2% inflation target. And so let's say you have inflation bumbling along at 2%, but then one day it spikes up to 3%. And then the Taylor rule says that you would raise interest rates by one and a half percentage points. And you'd also take into account how overheated or undercooked the wider economy is as well. And those two factors together, inflation and the state of the economy, that's more or less it. That's the Taylor rule. I didn't think it'd be so important or useful, that's for sure. John crunched the numbers for his rule, and he found that it described fairly closely what the Federal Reserve had actually done in the 1980s and would go on to do in the 1990s. And when the Fed had deviated from the Taylor Rule, that was the 1970s, when inflation got so high that the Fed had to crash the economy in the early 80s to stamp it out. It was also in the early 2000s, when low interest rates contributed to massive housing price growth, fueling the speculative bubble that led to the Great Recession in 2008. John felt like his historical analysis vindicated the Taylor Rule. If the rule had been followed, maybe we could have avoided those crashes. And as the years go on, John is trying to promote this idea. We have an autopilot for the Fed. We have policy rules. And in his view, policy rules like the Taylor Rule work better than human judgment most of the time. The Taylor Rule does have its critics, notably Janet Yellen, the former Fed chair and now Treasury Secretary. She points out that, yes, the formula can work a lot of the time, but which indicators are you going to use? Like, is inflation the consumer price index, or is it the Fed's preferred consumption expenditures index? These questions matter a lot. Also, Janet Yellen says that geopolitical events like trade wars might be on the horizon, and these might be things that only a committee of human beings might be able to anticipate. But the Fed did, on its own initiative, start publishing charts twice a year comparing what it had been doing with interest rates with the Taylor Rule. And John says that has been insightful in this pandemic economy. Under the Taylor Rule, interest rates would have risen to around 7 or 8% last year. And instead, they stayed near zero. I'd say right now that most central banks are still behind. It's not like they're rushing to do this. John is holding out hope that our current high inflation might revive interest in institutionalizing his rule. Taylor's version of the world is a world without human beings. It's just a mathematical formula. Yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe we're the problem. <laughs> wow. Mary Childs. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, soon an archive of underground musicians from the 70s and 80s. Many in live performances will be released. That's ahead here on WBUR. 
And coming to City Space on Tuesday, November 15th, veteran Washington Post journalist Margaret Sullivan to discuss her new book, Newsroom Confidential. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In sports, the Celtics will be hosting the Nuggets tonight over at the Garden. The forecast showers, possibly a thunderstorm tonight. Some of those storms could produce heavy rain and gusty winds. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Showers continue into the morning before giving way to first cloudy and then sunny skies. Still some gusty winds, the highs around 73. WBUR supporters include Independent Education Group, guiding families seeking private and therapeutic school admissions and student academic advising. More at independenteducationgroup.com. And the Cabot in Beverly, presenting Jake Shimabukuro. The ukulele virtuoso performs Friday, November 18th at 8. Tickets at thecabot.org. Dr. Linda Vidon, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health, with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Alyssa Nadworny. Our next story is about an influential radio DJ that you've probably never heard of. Hello, it's Saturday night at KCRW 89.9 FM. My name's Deirdre. I'll be your host once you uh, pour yourself a drink and think about dancing. Before streaming, before the internet, Deirdre O'Donohue hosted a popular late-night radio show on member station KCRW in Southern California back in the 80s and early 90s. The show was called Snap. Deirdre would describe herself uh, in Snap as playing, quote, new, unusual, imaginative, inventive, and bent music. That's KCRW producer Mike Dodge Weiskop. He has spent the last few years, along with KCRW producer Bob Carlson, digitizing and remastering recordings of Deirdre's shows. All right, now what I need you to do, we have to do a little on air sound check here, so I need you to strum for a minute. And I'm going to be singing quite loud. I'm going to be singing quite well, loud, but don't turn my guitar up too, too loud because okay. I, I sound, I'm really rubbish. Snap often brought in bands to play live in the studio. Give me a sample of singing. She was very devoted to. Underground music, music that hadn't at that point um, received a wide exposure, if any exposure at all. Some of those artists were, or were soon to be, big names, like R.E.M., Meat Puppets, Tom Waits, and Sarah McLachlan. Bob Carlson was the studio engineer for a lot of those late-night performances. It almost felt a little bit like the adults had left, and now it was time to have this party. And the bands would come down, they would pile in, they would bring their friends. And so it was a scene. It was a scene there in the studio as much as, you know, a radio program. You were part of this, this uh, you know, living room party with some of the coolest bands in the world. KCRW is about to release more than 50 of these remastered live performances to the public. They'll be available Monday. So we invited Mike and Bob to come and tell us about some of their favorite finds. And the ones that I remember are the ones that where people come in and they try something new. One that comes off the top of my head is the Meat Puppets. 
one of the performances that you can hear online is them just going through a bunch of stuff almost off the top of their head. They're coming up with what they're going to play next just as they go almost, even like creating sort of medleys on the fly. It's like a journey of, of music. I'm going to choose one that I guess maybe falls more in the publicity tour end of things, but it's Suzanne Vega came in for her second ever radio appearance anywhere in the world in uh, April of 1985. I believe right now if I could, I would swallow you whole. Her record hadn't even come out yet. And, you know, early Suzanne Vega was really kind of a spectral presence. I mean, she had this really mystical, kind of understated sound that was really, you know, I mean, in, in, entirely unique in a lot of ways. I am friend to the undertow. I take and there's a version of her song Undertow in particular that I think is really just ravishing. There were also less well-known artists, like groups that Deirdre made famous because of the show with her community, but never really made it kind of like mainstream into big pop. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's, again, you know, a different era because, you know, now where you can basically hear any song you want to hear ever at any time here, you would discover things. You would hear things you couldn't hear anywhere else because Deirdre, you know, she would take uh, trips to London and Dublin and just to buy records. And so she would bring them back and play them here when they weren't even out yet. There was a band called The Blue Airplanes, which is also one of my favorites, and their full-on electric session was like an event. Deirdre used to mishear the lyrics, and there's a line of the song where he says, bring structures, and she thought he was always saying, send instructions. And so when <laughs> The Blue Airplanes played that song, he changed the lyrics to Deirdre's version. Oh, yeah, there's such community and, and, and like closeness in that example. I love that. This also got me thinking, how did Deirdre learn about these independent artists? You said she was traveling and like finding records. Where else did she get these ideas from? Her whole life was music. That was her whole point of living, practically. Uh, and so all her friends were musicians. You know, she lived in a rent control apartment in Santa Monica that was just packed full of records wall to wall. That's really what she cared about. And one thing I'll say, too, like, is, you know, Deirdre was a scholar, and she made meticulous notes for her shows. I mean, her genius is that she comes off very off the cuff, but she would have pages and pages of notes about every record that she'd bought. She would do deep research on these things. The recordings that are being released right now, a lot of them were originally recorded on reel-to-reel tape, right? Like, oh, we're talking kind of old mechanics yeah. here. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the process of remastering those? Like, how long does something like that take? For one thing, I had to get our engineers here at KSRW to roll out a reel-to-reel -reel machine, which we didn't use, you know. We had one in storage that we had to get out of mothballs and plug into one of our mixers. And when you have reel-to-reel -reel tapes after you've had them for a long time, they start to get filled with moisture. So what we used to do in the old days, we would bake them in a convection oven, and then you can dub them off until they go bad again. But I found a food dehydrator, and I found <laughs> I bought a $50 food dehydrator on Amazon, and it was even round. They were shaped like reels. It had little <laughs> baskets for each reel, so it was almost like it was made for the purpose. 
And that was the beginning of the project. But then that was only the beginning because she also had boxes and boxes of cassettes, Hmm. which I handed off to Mike, which he then took over in his home studio of digitizing. And so, Mike, you just kind of like, did you listen as you dubbed or what was that like? I I mean, that that was a dream come true. Any song or moments from the tapes that you might want to go out on? Bob, do you have a, a favorite that you think might send us off into the sunset? <laughs> um, do you think Nick Cave? <laughs> I, 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 that could work. Yeah, I mean, again, because I think of the, the vibe when this thing happened, and one of those that I think about is, is Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds when they came in. They kind of got it. They pulled up chairs, put them in a circle. They kind of improvised instruments a little bit. There was, you know, when they saw that we had a piano, so the guy sits down, starts playing. Somebody's playing drums on a box. first song they did on their session it's called the mercy seat it's a well-known nick cave song but it's it's just such a crazy vibe you can hear and feel that they're kind of doing it as they go along bob carlson and mike dodge weisskopf of kcrw thanks for talking with us guys thank you pleasure is ours Starting Monday, you can access the archive of SNAP performances through KCRW.com. Beautiful. (laughs) This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness, with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Give the gift of a Thanksgiving meal. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's really strange because for generations we used to live near the sea. We don't know anything else but the sea. Residents of San Luis, Senegal in West Africa are being forced to relocate due to climate change as the coastal city sinks under rising seas. It's Friday, November 11th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on WBUR, one of the largest crypto exchanges has filed for bankruptcy protection. It took less than a week for the company and its once popular CEO to wipe out financially. 
And on this Veterans Day, a mother serving in the Air Force recalls how members of her unit pitched in to buy Christmas gifts for her family. And you can expect a wet and windy evening as Tropical Storm Nicole passes through the area. The rain should give way to sunny skies by tomorrow afternoon. It's 6.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Vote counting after the midterms this week continues as con- control of Congress hangs in the balance. NPR's Domenico Montanero has more. Control of the House and Senate is still not known days after Election Day. All eyes are on Arizona and Nevada and their key Senate races there. New votes are expected sometime after 9 p.m. Eastern Time tonight. Democratic incumbent Mark Kelly in Arizona has about 115,000 vote lead at this hour. Uh, if for the House, Republicans need about seven more flips to be able to take back the House. They're on track to do that, but only narrowly. They may wind up with a one to maybe seven seat majority at this point. We'll see if that changes. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration is extending Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, for hundreds of thousands of people. NPR's Joel Rose reports the announcement late Thursday provides an 18-month reprieve for citizens of several countries. U.S. immigration officials are extending temporary protections for citizens of six countries, El Salvador, Honduras, Haiti, Nicaragua, Sudan, and Nepal, through June of 2024. More than 300,000 people were in danger of losing their work permits and protection from deportation after settlement talks broke down last month. Many have lived in the U.S. for decades with temporary protected status, which was created to help citizens from countries where conflict or natural disasters make it unsafe to return. The Trump administration argued that those protections should not be permanent, but its efforts to end TPS were tied up in court. TPS beneficiaries called the extension a relief, but they're still pushing for permanent protections. Joel Rose, NPR News. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says special military units have entered the city of Kherson hours after Russia said it completed withdrawing troops from the strategic city. Happy residents welcomed the Ukrainian troops with cheers. Russia's withdrawal marks the third Russian retreat of the war and the first to involve leaving a large occupied city in the face of a major Ukrainian counteroffensive. Two new Omicron subvariants have become dominant in the U.S., according to estimates released today by the CDC. And Piers Robstein has more. According to the CDC's estimates, the Omicron subvariants known as BQ1 and BQ1.1 have now replaced BA5 as the most common viruses spreading in the U.S. Scientists have been keeping a close watch on the new subvariants because they are among the most adept yet at evading immunity people have from previous infections and vaccinations. That means they could help fuel yet another winter surge as the weather gets colder and people start gathering and traveling for the holidays. The good news is the new subvariants don't seem to make people any sicker than the previous strains. Rob Stein, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Student loan borrowers in Massachusetts say they're disappointed but not surprised that a federal student loan relief plan is hitting some legal snags. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, a federal judge ruled yesterday the Biden administration's debt forgiveness program is unlawful. The judge called the program a, quote, complete usurpation of congressional authority in his ruling blocking the program. The Biden administration is appealing that decision. Tim Scalona is a student at Suffolk Law School with $170,000 in student debt. 
He's hopeful the program will survive, but... I think the back and forth, it's honestly a bit stressful. I feel like it leaves people in the balance. They don't really know what to expect or if they'll even get the support that was promised. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is urging Republicans who've challenged the program to stop holding up the financial relief. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Governor-elect Mara Healey is vowing to prioritize Western Massachusetts when she takes office in January. She visited Pittsfield this week. She says she wanted to show her appreciation for the region. We will be an administration that has a strong presence around the state, and especially in places that for far too long have not felt the love, so to speak, in terms of the money and the resources. Healy says she will focus her work on economic development and affordable housing. The Vietnam Veterans Moving Wall is spending Veterans Day weekend in Somerville. WBUR's Dave Faniff has more. This is the first time the Moving Wall has been to Somerville. Director of Veteran Services Ted Louis-Jacques says veterans have told him it will be an emotional occasion because many of them have friends whose names are on the wall. He says his department has identified the location of the names of local service members on the memorial. We're coordinating with our partners in Medford for those names to be on the list as well. So anybody that comes to the community will be able to see and find uh, folks named that are on the wall. Louis Jacques says there were 34 Somerville veterans whose names are on the memorial. He expects thousands of people to visit the wall through Monday while it's at Assembly Row. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. Well, it's now raining across most of the state, as WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us it's associated with former Hurricane Nicole. While the remnants of Nicole are moving in, scattered showers will turn to periods of heavy rain and some rumbles of thunder overnight into tomorrow morning. The rain should end in Boston around 11 a.m., give or take. Most of us will pick up either side of an inch, inch and a half of rain, so there will be some big puddles, isolated urban street flooding, but I'm not concerned about more than that. Strong south to southwest wind gust of 40 miles per hour in Boston and 55 miles per hour for the South Shore Cape and Islands will result in some isolated pockets of damage and outages. The wind subsides quickly, though, as the rain ends and the sun comes out right after that, boosting our highs to around 70 tomorrow afternoon. And it'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow night with a low around 47, partly sunny and cooler on Sunday with a slight chance of rain first thing in the morning, the high around 54. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As President Biden and other world leaders meet at the climate summit in Egypt, we're going to spend some time looking at the impact of climate change in Western Africa. At the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, the city of San Luis, Senegal, is sandwiched between the river and the sea. It's an ancient fishing town, a UNESCO World Heritage Center. During colonial times, San Luis was Senegal's capital. Today, it's steadily shrinking under rising seas. This is where we begin an epic journey from Senegal to Morocco to Spain, tracing a line that connects three of the biggest stories of our time, climate change, migration, and the rise of far-right political leaders. To understand that global story, we need to start local, with a grandfather named Mamadou Cham. He carries himself like a community leader, an elder, 
which he is. As a child, he was raised in a family of fishermen. Every day when his mother made lunch, she would send young Mamadou to fetch his father from the shoreline. Even if our mom hadn't started cooking the food, because the sea was very far from the houses, by the time you came back from calling your dad to have lunch, the lunch was ready. Nowadays, God has pushed the sea up to our houses. Climate change destroyed many houses. This old man no longer lives in the home that his parents built. He no longer lives in a permanent home at all. We no longer have the cool, fresh air we used to have from the sea. He sits in a temporary shelter built by the UN. It's a camp called Jogop. Hundreds of people live here, all of them displaced by rising seas. Mamadou leads their community organization. When I ask if he misses his former life as a fisherman, okay. of course, he says. The camp's landscape is uniform and monochrome. The flimsy plastic walls of the cookie-cutter buildings are the same tan color as the sand that surrounds them. The structures sit on gray concrete blocks in an orderly grid. These homes have no running water or electricity. Goats forage for any small nub of greenery. This place feels miles from the ocean, and it is. Some of the men here still catch a bus every day to go fishing at 4 a.m. They pay a bus fare they can't always afford. They tell us it feels insulting having to pay to get to water that used to be at their fingertips. Khadi Sar is Mamadou's wife. It's really strange because for generations we used to live near the sea. Fishermen, kids, they only know the sea. We don't know anything else but the sea. She sits in the sand with her daughters and grandchildren pouring tea. When I was a child, every morning we used to go to the sea to swim and to play hide-and-seek. Our kids nowadays won't have the opportunity to do that. There's an expression in Wolof, water doesn't leave its path. It means once water decides where it wants to go, there's no stopping it. Our ancestors talk about that, people who passed away a long time ago. Today, if you go and wake them up, they'll tell you, look, we had predicted this. Khadisar's ancestors also experienced floods. The water would come, and everyone would relocate for a few months. Before, when the sea rose, our ancestors used to go somewhere else until it went back, and then they'd go back to their houses. Today, it's still happening. But your ancestors left and returned. Do you think you will be able to return? I don't think so. The sea is still there. Climate change means weather events that used to be rare are common. Floods that happened once every century now arrive once a decade. There's no going back, and it's getting worse. Kids at this camp used to attend a school that faced the sea. It was destroyed in the flood. So kindergarten principal Amadun Jai is raking the sand before the first day of school here at Jogop. These kids, they're used to swimming and playing. That's what they know. But here, there's no water, no river, no sea. When a kid says to you, why did we have to leave our home? Why did we have to leave the sea? What answer do you give? 
The first thing I tell them is that there was a catastrophe. Your house has been destroyed by the sea. We step inside the classroom tent and it's sweltering. It's very warm inside, but on the walls I can see somebody has colored in a Santa Claus. And then there's an alphabet on the wall. I'm trying to imagine being a child who spends all day playing in the sea and suddenly coming here where you are surrounded by sand and you are sitting in this school where it's very hot and you're being told to learn. It must be so jarring. Yeah, it's difficult. But whatever situation these kids find themselves in, they can adapt to it. I wanted to know what life was like before the catastrophe, before the waters rose. So I asked the community leader, Mamadou Jam, to take us back to the house that he abandoned. And he agreed. We reached the community of Gendar. If I expected a cordoned off disaster area, it's the opposite. There's a cacophony of life here. In contrast to the camp's orderly tan monochrome, here, waves crash, birds wheel, wind blows, a pelican stands in the road. Fishing boats in rainbow colors line the shore, and the smells of fish, salt, and cooking fires mingle in the air. Mamadou points. This is where the edge of his house used to be. Now it's rubble. He leads us back to a room that's still standing. The deep blue walls are stippled with white and green where salt water and wind have peeled away the paint. I was born in this room. And now? Now what is this place? It's the sea. The sea was right up to here. Tell me what you think as you stand here. What is in your mind? In this life, a person is only linked with his origins, something you inherited from your parents. When you lose it, you lose everything. He'll never forget the day the water arrived. Yeah, like it was today. There was no storm, just a very high tide. When you were in the house and the water was coming in, can you show us how high it was? It was the water was up to your hips. I was afraid for the children and the women. I was trying to save them. When all the children and the women were rescued, that's when I started being afraid for myself. Many of the houses on this street were destroyed. A younger man named Amsatu Fall has rebuilt some of the walls in his family's house by tying fishing rope around plastic panels from the UN camp shelters. I did all this myself because the sea made the walls fall down. Most of his family has abandoned this neighborhood for the camp. But he stays here, at the edge of the water. He is a fisherman who sold his fishing boat a year ago. He's decided there's no future for him in Senegal. Going to Spain is the only way for me to solve all my family's problems. I tried many times, but every time my spiritual leader said, no, it's not time. He has a bag packed, ready for when the time is right. He shows it to us. And it's actually a bucket with a tight lid. In this bucket with a lid, there's basically one t-shirt, waterproof top and pants, uh, and then religious beads. And, and that's it. You start a new life, and that's all you carry. His six-year-old daughter, Ndaye, nuzzles up against his legs. Your daughter has been close to you this whole time. You clearly love her very much. 
Will it be difficult for you to go to Spain and not see her for a long time? Yeah, I named her after my mom. It's true, I love her very much. The problem is I'd rather travel and send money back home instead of staying here and seeing the misery here. When you imagine your life in Spain, what do you think it will be? My dream is to work hard and give money to my kids and my mom so she can at least have food for a month. Because ever since I was born, I've never seen my mom have money for a full month. He's 37 years old. I ask if he still has money for the journey from the fishing boat that he sold a year ago, and he says, no, no, I won't have to pay. Because I'm a fisherman, I understand the sea. I have useful skills for a journey like this. So, will you be the captain of the boat? Usually I'm the captain of the boat, so I might be the captain. This is the great responsibility of so many people's lives in your hands. Yeah, I'll treat them all like myself. We have the same needs. If I am successful, everyone is successful. But if not, we all fail. When he sold his boat a year ago, he explained to his children that he was going away, maybe for a very long time. By now, he thinks they've forgotten, but he doesn't forget it for a minute. He says when his spiritual advisor tells him to go, he will leave the drowning city of San Luis. He looks out at the crashing waves and says, it could even be tonight. Over the coming weeks, our journey leads us to Morocco and on to Spain to see how these dreams of a better life compare to the reality of global migration in an age of xenophobic politics. Everybody who leaves and goes to Europe on a boat, there's a moment when they wish they hadn't. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown, 68 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy today. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a Boston-based nonprofit advocating for climate-smart policies and a net-zero economy. More at C-E-R-E-S dot org slash W-B-U-R. In business news, the head of a trade association for the local biotech industry is leaving after just over a year on the job. The Mass Biotechnology Council announced today CEO Joe Boncori will resign by the end of the year to open up a consulting practice. Boncori left his role as a state senator last year to lead Mass Bio. The organization will elevate its chief operating officer, Kendall Berlin O'Connor, to be the new CEO. On Wall Street today, stocks closed up. The Dow up a tenth of a percent at 33,748. NASDAQ up a little more than one three quarters percent at 11,323. And the S&P 500 closed up about one percent at 39.93. Marketplace will have all the business news coming up in about 10 minutes here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. WBUR's Last Scene podcast is back with new episodes surprising new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Scene wherever you listen to podcasts. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadwani. And I'm Elsa Chang. It is a stunning collapse. Today, one of the largest platforms for trading cryptocurrency filed for bankruptcy. It's called FTX, a company that earlier this year was paying for commercials like this one, which aired during the Super Bowl. It shows a crypto booster trying to win over a skeptical Larry David. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. (laughs) What was meant as a funny joke then seems quite prescient today. NPR's David Gura joins us now with more. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what exactly happened with FTX today? Well, on Friday before the markets opened, FTX announced on Twitter it filed for bankruptcy. And the numbers in this filing are staggering. First of all, It's not just FTX. It's FTX plus more than 130 affiliated companies. Mm -hmm. And we've learned that their combined liabilities are between 10 and $50 billion. That's what they owe to their creditors. And there are more than 100,000 of them, a group that includes individual investors. And critically, the company also announced its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, who is barely 30 years old, (laughs) by the way. Bankman-Fried is no longer FTX's CEO. It has a new leader, John Ray, someone who has a lot of experience cleaning up big messes like this one, Elsa. He was brought in after Enron collapsed. Wow, the Enron cleanup guy is now taking over? Yeah, this implosion was very fast. I'm going to walk you through what happened here. One of Sam Bankman-Fried's rivals, the head of another crypto exchange called Binance, raised some questions about FTX's finances. This was just a few days ago. Then he announced plans to withdraw a lot of assets from FTX. That spooked FTX's customers so badly that the company faced a liquidity crunch and froze withdrawals. And here's where things took a really dramatic turn. The head of Binance, once again, Sam Bankman-Fried's rival, offers FTX a life raft, says he'll buy the company, then only a few hours later walks away from that deal. And at that point, Elsa, the writing was really on the wall. Yeah. Can you just tell us more about Sam Bankman-Fried? This is the 30-year-old who was at the center of all of this. Yeah. Aside from being very young, he was until very recently a multi-billionaire known for almost always wearing shorts and T-shirts and running (laughs) shoes. The New York Times called him studiously disheveled, but also a crypto emperor. Here he is at a conference recalling how he got into this business. It sort of looked like, oh, wow, maybe there are actually ridiculously good trades to do here. And and I jumped in and I think it was I spent like a year trading before I could really tell you what a Bitcoin was. A bit self-effacing, but it didn't take long until he was a celebrity, first within crypto, then beyond crypto, palling around with Tom Brady, signing endorsement deals. The NBA arena in Miami is named after FTX. Megan Fried recently shared the stage with former President Clinton and former President, uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair, and he was you know, really one of the biggest donors to Democratic candidates. Wow, what a fall. Well, where does all of this ultimately leave investors in FTX and its customers? 
Yeah, no one is feeling very optimistic, and this isn't going to get resolved quickly. This week, we've seen at least one prominent venture capital firm, which invested more than $100 million in this company, throw in the towel. Sequoia wrote down its investment to zero, meaning the firm regards it as worthless. But it wasn't just venture capital backing FTX. A pension plan for teachers in Canada invested $95 million in U.S. dollars. And there are lots of retail investors, lots of people who have deposits with FTX who don't know what's going to happen to those assets. Lee Reiners is the head of the Duke Financial Economic Center. Crypto's problem is that there's no lender of last resort to step in and provide emergency liquidity to prop up the system, right? The Federal Reserve is not going to, to step in here. There's no backstop. And Elsa, on top of that, FTX's U.S. platform says it may halt trading in a few days. So, David, what do you think this collapse means for, like, the wider crypto universe? Yeah, crypto was not in good shape before this happened. Bitcoin is down about 75 percent from a year ago when it hit its all-time high. We've been in this crypto winter, as investors call it, a prolonged downturn. And this is making things worse. Right now, there is a sense of despair in the crypto world and a sense that this collapse may be what ultimately gets Washington to step in. There's been a lot of talk about the need for regulation and what it might look like. This could open the door to that, Elsa. We know that key committees, including the Senate Banking Committee, is monitoring this closely, and so is the White House. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. This week's installment of My Unsung Hero from Hidden Brain is in honor of Veterans Day. In 2008, Jessica Israelison was having a hard time raising three young kids, going to college, serving in the U.S. Air Force as a medical technician. In September of that year, a family member died by suicide. Israelison was devastated. But one thing she didn't have to worry about was Christmas. Members of her unit pitched in to buy gifts for her family, even though Jessica had just decided to leave the military. And so I waited at the door and I heard that knock. And I answered the door, and it was April, and all the presents were in big black bags. We went through, and she's like, made, made me go through and make sure everything that I'd asked for was in there, that we weren't missing anything. And she helped me put them upstairs in my closet so we could hide them. So when the kids came back, they didn't see anything. She knew that I had gone through a major loss, and she was like the mom for me in my unit. And so... I remember that she didn't have to say very much to me. Um, She just kind of hugged me and told me, this will pass, it will get better. And the unit really is worried about you and they hope you're gonna be okay. And I'm so glad that um, we could help you again one more time for Christmas. And I felt that I wasn't alone, that I was cared for even though I was leaving the military, which was a very hard decision for me to make. I felt so much care and so much peace. I hope that someday I get to be April shy for somebody else because it changed my life. It has reminded me of the core value of the Air Force, which is service before self. And so that's what I try to give for my veterans when I'm in the healthcare system. I actively look for them. And I let them know they're not alone, that they can do this, that we can get them feeling better. Let's get your blood drawn. Let's find out what's going on because you deserve to be happy. You worked so hard for our country. And so I I honor them when I take care of them. They deserve it. They deserve that respect. Jessica Israelison of Colorado Springs. 
If you're based in the U.S. and you or someone you know is in crisis, you can reach the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. Florida's shrimp fishing industry was hit especially hard when Hurricane Ian tore through the state. More than a month on, longtime shrimpers are barely hanging on as the industry remains at a standstill. You have to produce a lot of shrimp to stay afloat, and that's what we were doing for the last year, just staying afloat. Tune in to our show Monday. Listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Stocks closed up today in Veterans Day trading. Marketplace is coming up next with all the day's business news. In the forecast, showers, possibly a thunderstorm tonight. Some of those storms could produce some heavy rain and gusty winds. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Showers continue into the morning before giving way first to cloudy skies, then sunny skies. Still some gusty winds. The highs will be around 73. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections with condo common area consultations as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com.